Hi, this is George Denholm. And this is Dustin Weber. Welcome to the 5 by 2 podcast, where each week we discuss Christian discipleship. We hope that you'll find this podcast interesting and informative, but also challenging as you strive to grow in your discipleship to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. For this episode, we welcome back Pastor Adam as he joins us as we continue our discussion on the Lenten Sermon Series. So now, Pastor Adam, the Lenten Sermon Series is all on the book of Exodus and how that relates to our lives and how it relates to the death and resurrection things we're doing on Sundays. Let's just refresh what we were talking about last week before we jump into this week's discussion. Yeah, so so far in the book of Exodus, we have gone through Exodus 1 and 2. Exodus chapter 1 continues the story from the book of Genesis. Right, So if you read Exodus, you need to be familiar with how Genesis closes because Exodus is really a continuation of Genesis. And we learn that God's people have been in slavery for 400 years, and they are now numerous, and that makes the Pharaoh of Egypt a little nervous. So in order to maintain Pharaoh's power, he kind of does a couple of things. One, he kind of does a little hush-hush murder party. And then that doesn't quell the numbers. So then he does a little out loud, out public murder party. And he orders that all of the baby boys out of the Hebrew people would be thrown into the Nile. And that's really chapter one. Chapter one ends with uh, this horrible, horrific thing. And you're left wondering, where is God in all of this? Chapter two picks up. It introduces the main character. It introduces Moses. And ironically enough, Moses is saved through that same Nile River that Pharaoh wanted to kill the Hebrew people in. God used that river not for death, but for life. And he instructed the mom of Moses, Jochebed, right? She was uh, smart enough, savvy enough to put Moses in a little ark, in a little basket, and float Moses down the river where Pharaoh's daughter picks him up. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter, ironically enough, saves Moses and really saves all of the Hebrew people. And she names him Moses. And then in the middle of chapter 2, there's about 40 years that pass. And really at the middle of chapter 2, Moses is 40 years old. He's grown up in the palace, um, but something not great happens. He sees people afflicting his people, and that irritates him, makes him a little angry. So Moses ends up killing an Egyptian. After that, Pharaoh kind of finds out about it. Pharaoh wants to kill Moses also. At any time that you are on a hit list, as Moses was, you flee town. So Moses flees to Midian where he finds a wife, finds a father-in-law, and finds a new job. And he is a shepherd. And he is a shepherd for 40 more years, which takes us to Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, Moses isn't 20, he isn't 40, he isn't 60, he isn't 70. Moses is 80 years old at the beginning of Exodus chapter 3, one of the most famous parts of the book of Exodus. So with that, we've got a little bit of introduction about the preceding chapters, and now we want to get in today into chapter 3, which is the call of Moses to rescue God's people. Dustin, will you want to go ahead and start us off reading this? And and like last time, we're going to interrupt you, but we'll try not to be too rude about it. All right, sounds good. All right, so we got Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. 
Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. All right, hold on. There is so much in the first just five verses. I don't know how we're going to get through all of them. But I think a couple things to point out. Number one, really, Exodus chapter 3 chronicles... Moses's change. Moses has changed quite a bit. And, and here in Exodus chapter three, this is a big moment for Moses. And we know that change does not come quickly, right? Even for us, if we would like change a habit, usually like 40 days. 40 days is a habit change. 40 days it takes for habit change. It's not quick. And a lot of other things in this world are quick, but the process of change is not. It took Moses 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness of Midian, being a shepherd. And now he's ready ready to take on this great job from God. But in the middle of his shepherding, what does he come across? He comes across a burning bush that doesn't burn up. Have you ever seen one of those, George? I have not. But here's one of those things with fire that like, I always emphasize when I teach the kids about acolyting. We use fire to show symbolically the power and presence of God. And so here, the burning bush is the power and presence of God. He's there and yet, in his power, the bush isn't burning up. We see this later on with the pillar of fire that will lead the Jewish people through the wilderness. We see later on the Holy Spirit shows up looking like the tongues of fire. We see the fire from heaven coming down and burning up the sacrifice of Elijah when he's fighting the prophets of Baal. So fire is oftentimes in the Bible a symbol of physical representation of God's power and presence. Yeah, but this fire doesn't burn up the bush, right? All the rest of the fires, at least that I've seen, totally burn up what it is currently using for fuel for the fire. This one doesn't, and it makes you wonder why, right? I think there's many parallels that you can take from them, but I think at least one of them is looking at the story of the Israelites. And in the story of the Israelites, they will also not be consumed by their suffering, right? Just like this bush is not consumed by the burning, the Israelites will not be consumed by the suffering. And the suffering has gone on for 400 years, which I'm sure led the Israelites to wonder, where is God, right? When we suffer, we call out for the same thing, right? God, where are you? But the burning bush tells us that God is not above their suffering. God is not below their suffering as God was not above the bush. God was not below the bush, but God was in the bush. God was in the suffering. The sena is that Hebrew word for bush. The other side of that, too, is while you're talking about that, God often uses the suffering and the incidents in our life to refine us. You know, just as silver is refined in fire, the fire burns off the dross, but what's left behind is that silver. You know, so you can also kind of think of God as refining us with his fire. The fire of the Holy Spirit burning within us in the process of sanctification burns off those things that God would not have in our lives. So at verse 5, we get really the core problem in the book of Exodus, right? It says, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. The core problem, book of Exodus, the core problem for us is that God is holy and we are not. You know, that Hebrew word sana there is used one other time in the Hebrew Bible. And it's used to explain or describe a place that God is dwelling. God is one who dwells in the sana. It's in uh, Deuteronomy 33. So not only is the bush holy, but really this word is used only twice in all of scripture. So this word is really set apart itself too. So God is holy. Moses is not. 
He's there on Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. There's a burning bush that's not burning up. And I'm sure Moses has a lot of questions. Let me back up to that, Sinai. Maybe I overspoke earlier when you were saying something about it. How is that spelled? I mean, I know it's a Hebrew word, but how would we kind of like phonetically spell it out now? Because it's not the same as Sinai, right? It's close to it, which is how we get Sinai. But Sinai is like S-E-N-E-H, like Sinai. Okay. Yeah. But it is related to Sinai then. You know, the three Hebrew letters are closely related. So when you're reading Hebrew, you can see, I wouldn't call it a wordplay, but they're very, very close. So you could see how the Sana was on Sinai. Now let's just talk about that really quickly. Do we know where Mount Sinai is? Yeah, you know, a lot of archaeologists and a lot of biblical scholars think they have a pretty good idea of where it is. Many of them think that it's actually the common name now is the Jabal Musa, which is on the Sinai Peninsula. It's about 7,500 feet above sea level or, or something like, like that. It's one of the higher peaks of the mountains of that area. So they can kind of oversee everything going on. And that also had the name Mount Horeb too, correct? Yeah, so Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb in scripture are synonymous. They're the same place. And we see that with the Sea of Galilee too, right? The Sea of Galilee has two names. So just like this, it has kind of two names. And the interesting thing, again, you know, you drew on the idea of the holy ground and, and God is holy and we are not. But there's a concept we also kind of understand that wherever God is, he makes it holy. So even on this mountain where, you know, three or four days before Moses might have been up there and the sheep were pooping all over, now God's there and it's a holy ground. He's got to take off his shoes. You know, wherever God is, is a holy place. And so we kind of think about that with our sanctuary, which means holy place, yeah, yeah, yeah. that we kind of set that aside. And, and while God is with us every day, he's with us in a special way every time we gather in that sanctuary for worship. Mm-hmm. You can even expand it to us. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, right? Yeah. So God has made us holy, not because you know we're still the saint sinner kind of thing, but we have been made holy by God because he is present with us. Yeah, absolutely. Spot on. All right, so we're starting back here with verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I'm going to pause you there for a minute. Isn't Jesus one that also says that referring to this phrase here, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, to say that God is a living God, that he is not a God of the dead, he's a God of the living. So that draws into our whole thing with death and resurrection. We as believers will live forever. We have a living God and we will live because of him. Yeah, you know, this idea of the name of God right? Which is just fascinating. But at the very beginning, right? He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So you already see the I am, which we haven't gotten to yet. Don't jump Um, ahead too fast. I know. But this exact portion we actually focused on last week, you know, that God does four things. He sees, he hears, he's concerned, and he comes down to help his people out. And he already has a place picked out for them. A land flowing with milk and honey George, does that sound good to you? Uh, not so much. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like a lot of sticky mess, like when my <laughs> grandkids visit. 
<laughs> but I understand that in that culture, that would have been like riches. You know, we might say, you know, it's a land of steak and lobster or you yeah, know, okay. some of those fancy things. They would have been luxuries at that time, right? Yeah, so it's a land of luxury, a land of richness, and a land ultimately also described in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's a land where they will have bread in no scarcity. They will lack nothing. That's kind of the other description of the promised land. But now there's the other side of it too, is while they wandered in the wilderness, all they had was bread and water and quail, you know, but that's kind of the idea that those are the necessities of life. God brings the luxuries when he comes into the promised land. And so we have the necessity of life here on earth, but we have that look forward to the new heavens and new earth where all the luxuries will be there. Yes, where God will take us from the land of bondage to the land of beauty in the promised land, our eternal life. Starting back with verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Let me pause you there. I'm going to go back before we lose it. We brought it up earlier. I am shows up there. This is God's personal name. So when we talk about God, God is like his job, but I am is his name. And I am here is that interesting thing. You know, the Hebrew letters would have been transliterating, Y-H-W-H. And so we usually would say Yahweh for that, or to Latinize it, Jehovah Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. comes from that tetragrammaton, if Mm -hmm. you want to go all official. There's your $5 word. The $5 word. But Yahweh, for the Jewish people, that was something that was very important that they did not want to use that later on with the Ten Commandments. They didn't want to use that in vain. And so oftentimes they would say a different word. And so if you look at some Jewish writings, even today, they'll instead of writing God, they'll put G hyphen D because they don't want to misspeak that name. And so oftentimes in our Bibles, where that word would have been Y-H-W-H, you'll see the word Lord placed in there. It's the word I am, Yahweh, and yet Lord is printed there, but it's usually in all capital letters mm, yeah. to distinguish it from Lord, that God is the Lord of the world, as opposed to his name, I am. But again, in order not to take that name in vain, oftentimes the Bible translators will use the word Lord. But it's okay to say the name Yahweh and the name God for us, right? Because we understand that it's not taking the Lord's name in vain. That is a whole different 
whole different set of rules. Yeah, some of that probably comes from like the Jewish focus on following the rules exactly and knowing how many mm-hmm. steps I need to take on the Sabbath day before it was work. For us, as long as we're praying, praising, giving thanks, sharing that name of God, we're allowed to use that name. It's yeah. just the in vain. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can use the example if I would just sit here and just repeat over and over again Adam's name, he's going to get re- very angry with me. But if I say, Adam, what's going on? I'm asking him a specific question. That's what God wants. He doesn't want us just to throw out his name but he wants us to use his name to pray to him, to praise him, to tell others. Yeah, and you said it's that personal name, right? So just like when kids grow up, right, my kids, we're teaching them right now, which is, you know, neither right nor wrong, but we're saying, you know, it's Mr. George or Mr. Denholm or Mr. Dustin or Mr. Weber, but calling somebody by their first name, by their personal name, makes it just a little more like personal. So as they will go on, this is the name that they will be given from generation to generation, But this whole thing started because actually Moses asked a question. Moses asked, who am I, right? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And I love this because God doesn't actually answer him. (laughs) Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God says, I will be with you, which is not really an answer to the question. But what God is saying is that, you know, Moses, you're missing the point. You're asking the wrong question. It's not who am I that Moses is asking that question. That's not the right question. It's who is God? And God is, I am who I am. I am who you will discover me to be as Moses continues to know more about him. An interesting thing that I saw too is like God gives a sign that's in the future. This will be a sign to you because I remember Jesus saying, I'm not going to give you any sign except for the sign of Jonah. But basically in three days I'll raise again. That's going to be a sign in the future. So God always doesn't give us the sign we want right now. You know, he doesn't hold up, here's your sign. But Later on, we'll go, oh, that was my sign. Yeah, and that sign, this is the only plural you so far that God has given Moses. So the plural you is y'all. So the rest of this, God— Wait, y'all is not a word. Y'all is for sure a word. (laughs) It means you, the nation of Israel, not y'all. God said, I will be with you. That's Moses. And this will be a sign to you, Moses, that I've sent you. And then, so this will be a sign to you, y'all, y'all— will worship God on this mountain. This is all a promise. All of you Israelites, not y'all. This is promised to y'all, <laughs> to all of Israel, that this will be the sign that I have saved you. You're going to be back on this mountain, and you're going to be worshiping me. Dustin, you better keep reading. We're almost out of time. Verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. I love the beginning of this, verse 18. This is the funniest thing to me. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Let's fast forward, like, what, 10, 12, 14 verses? They don't listen. <laughs> but Moses also knows they're not going to listen. He goes, what if they don't listen? Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, ultimately they do, right? right? Ultimately they do. But I can just imagine Moses, like, first time he talks to the Israelites, and it actually kind of comes out. When he talks to the elders, Moses is like, all right, this is a done deal, slam dunk. And the elders are like, I don't know about this. 
And then actually Moses cries out to God, like, what are you doing? Like, you told me that this was going to happen. But this idea of plundering the Egyptians, it's so much more than just a really last add-on to the promise. What is that all about? You know, if you look at that, later on we'll read that what was the riches that were plundered is what God uses to build the tabernacle that travels with them. You know, and so God is really using the riches of Egypt upon which they built upon his people, right? The riches of Egypt came because they had enslaved Israel. So really, this is God taking his payment for Egypt using his people. We might get worried about the plunder word, that it's, uh, is this pirates plundering thing? But the people asked, right? Yes, so that will be used, right, for the tabernacle. The tabernacle is going to be so beautiful that it will be ordained, it will be built by the very gold that pharaoh had and if you read through like the world history pharaoh was one of the richest most lavish people there was there are egypt at this point in time was one of the most powerful nations so they had a lot another interesting thing if you look further up in the history with the israelites every time there was another nation that invaded them they plundered the gold from god's temple and so god is a god of justice and he demands what belongs to him So many times we see in our lives, too, we don't want to give to God what we're supposed to give to him. We plunder from God in the bad sense of the word, Mm -hmm. and when we actually live a life of stewardship, we're giving to God what he deserves. Yeah, and ultimately it's saying that, you know, God plunders death for us. God takes everything out of, of death and gives us only the good part. He gives us life. So God plunders our enemies, but for our good, because God is a God for you. Well, there is a lot more we wanted to talk about today, but we dug in too much of this. So we're going to continue our discussion next episode. Uh, We'll get into chapter four, and then we'll talk about how Moses actually, after a lot of objections, follows God's plan and appears before Pharaoh and all that that uh, brings up. So as we move forward, we would just remind you that you can be part of this Lenten journey with us by attending our special worship services on Wednesdays, uh, by picking up the Lenten devotional book, or by texting LENT, L-E-N-T, to 812-775-2300. Text LENT to that number, and then you can get those devotions sent to your phone. As one of the links within those devotions, you can also click on it and have that devotion read to you. So there's a lot of ways you can follow that journey with us as we journey with the Israelites through the wilderness and to the promised land. Thanks for listening, everybody. We look forward to continuing these discipleship conversations throughout Lent. Now go out and serve God and others.